Welcome to the Cutting the Gordian Knot podcast. Today, we're going to be talking about the Industrial Revolution. We're going to leave so much out of this story that it's not even funny. Nevertheless, I think you're going to enjoy this one, and hopefully you'll learn some cool stuff this episode. If you have any comments or ideas about the Industrial Revolution, why it happened, where and when it happened, I'd love to hear them. I have super smart, very cool listeners, and it always blows me away to hear you guys' comments, questions, suggestions. They're always awesome. So email me at thegordiannot101 at gmail.com. I always appreciate hearing from you. So today, we are going to answer six main questions related to the Industrial Revolution. One is, why did it take so long? Why did humanity stay so poor for so long? Next, why is it that we got wealthy all at once? Three, what were the causes of this wealth increase? Four, why is it that this giant wealth increase and the industrial revolution that went with it. Why did it happen in England? Number five, why didn't it happen in Rome? And number six, why didn't it happen in the Song Dynasty in China, which is the one which we'll probably spend the most time on, because I think that one's quite interesting. So, this qualifies as a cutting the Gordian knot type topic, because it has all sorts of different strands that we can go down. It's a very tangled question, and we are not going to be able to trace down every bit of it. Instead, we need something that can cut through the chaos, something that can give us a clear and simple out-of-the-box solution for why it is that we would expect it to take a long time for humanity to all of a sudden become wealthy. Um, so what would that be? Well, here's our thesis. I think that the explosion of wealth starting in the Industrial Revolution is ultimately due to a combination of contingent factors that aligned at the right time and at the right place to allow for the substitution of non-food calories for food calories in the production of food, thereby freeing agricultural laborers to move into cities to leverage the human ability to work through the creation of labor-saving machines, and thereby creating a feedback cycle that continues to this day in expanding worker productivity as measured by energy required to reverse a given amount of entropy. That is our thesis, and we'll return to it. But first, let's answer this question. Why were we so poor for so long? In the vast majority of human history, We've been quite poor indeed. Well, let's see. We're going to deal with four different reasons why we were so poor for so long. The first one is entropy, and we referenced that in our thesis earlier. Because there are more ways for a given thing to be arranged in a not useful way than a useful way, with time, disorder will predominate. For instance, if you have a cup of coffee, you can have all of your cream to the left side of your mug. Or you could have another ordered uh, form of your cream, maybe all of it at the exact top. But because there's a limited ways for it to do one of these strange positions, and there's a much larger number of ways where it could just be dispersed through your coffee, we would expect, especially given time, that disorder will increase, that entropy will increase. 
Now, this isn't just true with your cup of coffee. This is true with your desk. This is true with your refrigerator. It's true in society. It's also true with capital assets like water wheels or complex things that require low entropy states. If you're listening to this on a smartphone, there are precious few ways that the molecules of your smartphone can be arranged in order to function as a smartphone. And there's a massive amount more possibilities for it to fail. This represents a very low entropy state, your smartphone. Now, physics-wise, we understand that it takes energy to drive down entropy. Basically, throughout human history, we've been stuck. We've been stuck in a battle against entropy. We've created capital assets, ones that could even save us labor. But entropy works against us. We've tried to cultivate fields, and entropy works against us. There are more ways that your field can turn into a weedy mess than it can to be a productive farm. So the balance between the forces of entropy and the quantity of energy that we can extract from nature to lower our entropy state, that reaches an equilibrium that we call the normal state of society. Here's something related. There's such thing as complexity theory, and it goes something like this. The more nodes that you add into a system, and thereby the more interrelations between things in that system, the more rapidly the energy that it requires to run that system will increase. So imagine that the graph of total nodes is on the x-axis, and energy consumption is on the y-axis. As you add nodes, the interrelations increase exponentially, and as does the power consumption. So just like if you tried to run up that exponential curve, you would find that you eventually fall back down. Maybe you can make it a little bit farther one time, but like humanity, we've been running up the complexity and then sliding back down as it requires more and more energy. We eventually reach an equilibrium with how complex our society as a whole can be. So that's reason number one. We were so poor for so long because we reached an equilibrium point between the forces of entropy and the energy usage from complexity and the quantity of energy that we could produce. Next, the Malthusian trap. And this one's a famous one. A monk called Malthus or something said that as food production rises, babies rise as well to munch up all that extra food. And as a result, we balance out to roughly a subsistence level. And it's a trap because no matter how hard we try to get wealthy, to increase more and more food, to be more and more efficient in doing this, well, we just keep on having babies. And as a result, we, uh, we just stack up the mouths to feed and we're in the same situation as we were before. Now, there are similar issues with resources like firewood or materials for pottery and shipbuilding and things like that. It might be that you have a bumper crop of, of firewood and then you use it quite quickly. And, and if you're limited by the amount of, of energy from non-food calories that you need to survive, well, then we could have a Malthusian trap that relates to this. But it's important to note that it almost always relates to food. 
That's typically the limiting resource, not raw materials and not non-food energy resources. That's a little bit more rare to be limited in your population size by one of those things. The next reason we were so poor for so long is called the wealth to war problem. At least that's what I call it. This is where an increase in wealth does not perfectly correlate with an increase in military power. And thereby, this creates an unstable equilibrium where the most productive societies that create the most wealth are then taken over by societies who can acquire that wealth by diverting their resources, not to production, but instead to military conquest. So if you get rich, you're just creating an incentive for somebody else to take you over. This is even mentioned by Aristotle. We also have the wealth to war problem in an internal way, because we have a government. And this is made up of a class of people who can take things from the population by rule of law or by coercion. If that society becomes very wealthy, well, the, the gains to getting that money out of one's own society through coercion or through law or through some type of taking class, well, that increases. So more and more of society is diverted into the taking class from the making class. This is the big government problem. It's kind of like an internal war. Uh, it's kind of like an autoimmune disease in the economy. The next one, reason number four, so poor for so long, is the long-term zero effect in the status quo bias. Let me ask you a question. Put your math hats on, listeners. What is the net present value of a $1 billion investment fund that runs for 100 years, has an average return per year of 100% across 99 years, and only one day of a 100% loss? Did you get the answer? Remember, 100 years of 100% return in only one day of 100% loss in 100 years. Well, that billion dollars is gone. The present value of such a fund would be zero dollars. It only takes one instance of starvation, famine, total loss, plague, eradication by violence to make a society stop existing. Over the hundreds of thousands of years of human society, black swan events where everything hits the fan all at once, th those do happen. And it's only conservative, long-term oriented societies that can survive. Everyone else is dead. So the idea of trying large-scale food energy production changes when food is scarce is absolute lunacy. The vast majority of innovations throughout history have either failed or have failed to scale. So we would expect that societies in general across the vast sweep of history, ought to be very conservative by nature, particularly when we're looking at advancements in vital things like food supply. So just recap, we're in a battle with entropy, so we hit an equilibrium. We're a battle with the Malthusian trap, so we hit an equilibrium. And we have the wealth to war problem that can that can happen from outside other countries or inside the taking class taking from the making class. And finally, we have the conservative nature and the status quo bias of society. But look on the bright side. There are things that have helped 
through human history for us to be not quite so poor, at least not for quite so long. Number one, animal power. Solar energy turns into chemical energy in plants. These plants are inedible to us, and therefore those calories are unavailable for us to fight against entropy or to build more complex societies which have higher energy needs. But animals find these little grasses delectable and munchable. And they do munch these, create energy in their own bodies, and then they can run pumps and plows. They can power transportation and trade. That allows for more complexity. That shifts the equilibrium point in the battle against entropy. Another thing that has historically helped, and this one's not recommended, but slavery. Slavery shifts wealth from those who create it to those who stole it. Now, this can help people create more complex societies, but it's at the cost of other people's society. An example would be Rome, where they enslaved a massive amount of people in North Africa. North Africa, the quality of life for those slaves, very low. But the excess of their labor over and above what it took to feed themselves was transferred to Rome, where they could have a very complex, rich society. Again, not recommended, but for at least some, this did help to shift that equilibrium point. Another one, monasteries. The monastery system throughout the Middle Ages allowed for a concentration of productive, very smart, capable men who could read, who were working in community, who unlike a, a father of a family who has to feed their wife and their children, they only have themselves to feed, which means this is a concentration of smart people with few mouths to feed. And if you've ever been around a bunch of guys all in a group, you realize they become quite competitive. So out of monasteries, we get a host of inventions from these fellows. Um, and we also get a number of things which are built for society, including some windmills that powered a, a grain mills. Uh, we had a water pumping stations. We even had tidal power. Um, so a lot of cool things came out of these monasteries. Sailing vessels. Sailing vessels help because we're actually harvesting energy from the wind. And that can help us to, uh, to trade, to move things to where they're most needed, etc. And here's one that you wouldn't expect on this list, disease. Ironically enough, smallpox, malaria, and leprosy, which were all heavily present in the ancient world, actually, well, in a way helped. And why? Well, as terrible as it is, um, this can offer an alternative to being regulated by food. So it can help you escape the Malthusian trap because your population is now disease tolerance limited, not food limited. Humans are apex predators. We're not, we are food limited, not predation limited. But in the place of predation, we have the, uh, we have the black death. We have malaria, smallpox. You could say that maybe we're not apex predators. The black death is. So following the black death, we had a massive increase in wealth per person because, well, half of everybody was dead and their stuff went to their neighbor. So, does that help? I, I guess. <laughs> um, it does help us break free from absolute grinding poverty. And the next one, which will become extraordinarily important in a variety of places, coal. Now, coal wasn't present everywhere, and it wasn't present in abundance everywhere. 
Um, for instance, in Rome, it powered a number, a number of foundries. It was used as heating. It was used for a variety of things, but it seems that they exhausted it. Um, and by the time of Marco Polo, many hundreds of years later, when they came back and told the Italians what they found, one of those things were black rocks, which the Chinese would, would burn and uh, could power three hot baths a week, they said. Well, the Italians just didn't believe them because at that point, the coal was gone. Nevertheless, when it was around, it was nice. So, why did wealth happen seemingly in just one big explosion? Why not a nice gradual increase in wealth? Why is this exponential change after this long period of grinding poverty? Well, I think there's a number of reasons why we should expect the increase in wealth to follow not a linear, but an exponential function. One, the exponential nature of capital investment. The wealth increase during the Industrial Revolution did not happen in a stepwise manner, nor was the wealth leading up to this event linear, as we said, and that's because capital markets generate a turn that's reinvested. It compounds. It creates an exponential function. Everybody who's ever seen a, a uh, graph of exponential growth relating to uh, capital knows what this looks like. So it's not an all-at-once wealth, wealth explosion, but it is one that seems to accelerate. The next one, trading possibilities grow exponentially. So it's not just your capital's growing exponentially because of its reinvestment, but your trading possibilities grow exponentially as you increase more trading partners. So if it's just you and your friend Gary, well, you can trade back and forth, and, well, that's dandy, so long as you two have different skills, different relative advantages in producing things, supplying things, you can have gains from trade. But if you add another person, well, you've massively increased the amount of trades. You can have three-way trades, so maybe you don't want anything that Gary has. But that third person can be the, the intermediary between the two, and you can make a three-way trade where everybody wins. You add four, five, six, seven, eight people. Imagine you have a thousand people. By adding one more person, we add a thousand more potential trades. Whereas before, when we just added that one more person, we just added one more trade. So the amounts of interrelations increase exponentially because there are more and more permutations. There are more and more possible combinations, i.e. trades, between the different traders. And the next one, population. Population does not, if it, so long as it's not constrained by some factor like a, like disease or food, etc., it will increase exponentially. So if we have all things equal, uh, even if we're not making more per person, if we increase the total amount of people, then we're going to see rapid economic growth. And with more people than in existence, we have more ability for specialization and trade. It's just you on a desert island, you really can't be rich. Just 100 people on a desert island, well, it's not going to be much specialization. But if you're in a country with 335 million people like I am, well, we can have a truly astounding amount of specialization, which allows us to then trade and uh, produce truly astounding amounts of wealth. So that leads us to 
what are the proximate causes of the wealth increase? So now we have worked through why did humanity stay so poor for so long? Why did we get wealthy all at once? Now let's talk about the actual proximate causes of the wealth increase. Number one, coal, glorious coal. This broke us from what's called the organic economy. Let me read a section from a book by Ian Morris called Social Development. In a word about this book, first, it is free. It is an ebook. He also wrote a, a book which is virtually identical and he sold it, but he really wanted these ideas to get out there. So he also released it for free. So shout out to Ian Morris. And the amount of work that this man did, <laughs> it's truly astounding. Truly astounding. It is hundreds of pages of graphs and charts and uh, really cool things. And he very much enthusiastically would support the thesis that we started with talking about the amount of energy capture. So let me read you a little bit from here. And towards the end, we have a little bit about coal. Now he's quoting some uh, different people, one uh, Wrigley, one uh, Cook. So Cook suggests while typical hunter-gatherers captured just about 2,000 calories per day of non-food energy, early farmers raised this to 8,000 calories per day and advanced pre-industrial farmers up to 20,000 calories per day. My own reconstruction suggests that in the long run, passing over several periods of collapse, non-food energy rose steadily across the 13th millennia until the end of the Ice Age around 12700 BC, until in Roman Italy, the core of the most advanced ancient agrarian empire. It may have reached 25,000 calories per day. This seems to have been the ceiling on what was possible in a pre-industrial society corresponding to the boundary between what E.A. Wrigley calls the advanced organic economies and fossil fuel economies. For nearly 2,000 years, agrarian empires pressed against this ceiling without breaking it. Only in the 18th century, when British entrepreneurs learned to convert the energy released by burning coal from heat into motion, did non-food energy capture increase so much that it could be turned into food calories, freeing humans from the Malthusian trap. So there you go. That has got to be our number one reason, coal. Because as he said in that last paragraph, coal is what freed us from this Malthusian trap. It's because the cost of gathering this food energy was low enough that we could gather it, convert it into a type of energy, which is an increase in complexity, um, into a type of energy which can then give us food calories. And then at that point, that allows farmers to flood into cities, to become specialized workers, to work with the increase of, of capital that we now have as a result of our much greater productivity. So, coal. Coal is the hero in this story. But that's not the only hero. We also have free markets. Because we had to have something that allows these, uh, uh, this freed-up capital to flow to high-productivity investments. And we needed the grounds for private uh, 
private ownership so that we could have experimentation in agriculture, experimentation in production, so that people would have an incentive to, to risk massive amounts of their personal fortune in order to create factories, mines, things like that. Also, the discovery of the new world. Normally, we're halted by this, this ceiling of how much energy we can capture. And the energy comes in the form of food, non-food calories, which are used for uh, doing work or, or heating your home. And finally, like raw materials like iron. It takes a lot of calories to produce iron, not that it has calories internal to it. But when we discovered the new world, well, we got a huge bumper crop of raw materials. We were able to gather lumber for better ships for trade expansion to use old-growth forests to get massive masts to make the ships of the line and, and many other enormous sailing vessels. So this reduced the need for us to channel our labor towards, the, uh, towards getting raw materials, so it freed us up to invest in other things like uh, capital resources or um, advances in, um, in uh, productivity in other ways, uh, exploiting trade opportunities, etc., um, let's see, let's see. Well, we'll also name technological advancements. We had a bunch of those during this period. Now, this isn't like an ultimate cause, like all of a sudden somebody had a great idea. Technological advancements in mining, food production, etc., they only happen when it is economically possible for them to happen. There are very simple steam engines in Greece. Um, Archimedes, I'm told, actually drew up something which looked remarkably good. Um, the Romans could have made one. The Greeks could have made one. But why on earth would you? Think about the massive expenditure of time and money that it would take to bring about one of these things and how little it would give you in return. What you need is you need an economy that incentivizes this because it's the cheapest thing to do, not because it's the most technologically advanced. Again, we are fighting against entropy, and that doesn't help to have something more complicated. Alrighty, which brings us to our next section. Why England? Because England is the site of modernity blooming. We have the Industrial Revolution starting here. We have maybe the massive surge, the quickest surge of wealth anywhere. Well, the number one reason is coal. Coal, we've mentioned it before, and it is everywhere in England. In fact, we find that there's evidence of its usage all the way back to Roman times. Bituminous coal is found often at the surface, not deep underground. And Along the beach, there's sheer cliffs in many parts of England, and that exposes seams of coal. Now, as these get degraded, hunks of coal just fall off the cliff, and they gather at the beach. This is referred to as sea coal. And because they're at the beach, now it can be very easily transported all over England by ship. Now, other factors which drove coal adoption were deforestation. In England, in the year 1000, it's estimated that about 15% of England was forested. By 1900, that was down to 5% of England was forested. Now, depending on the year you look at, what I found to be the average for Europe was somewhere around 37% of Europe was forested. 
So when it came to heating one's home, in Europe it was common to use wood still through a vast majority of their history. However, for a very long time, it was coal in England that was really the only option with so few trees. But there's a few cultural trends which are going on as well. There's a book called The Domestic Revolution by Ruth Goodman talking about how coal uh, changed everything in Victorian homes. Now, one of the things she points out, which I thought was interesting, was a strong demand side for coal. So it wasn't just that they had a fair bit of it, that they had few alternative resources, but people wanted more coal production and more iron production, partially because of the invention of the cast iron stove that became the core of an English household. And it was women who wanted to have this all-purpose machine. It heated your home. It boiled water. It cooked bread. It did all sorts of things. It could dry clothes. It could do everything. So it had to run on coal, or it typically ran on coal. So that vastly increased the demand. But wait, but wait, I can hear you say, didn't lots of other places have coal? Well, yes, they did. But remember, the Romans, although they had some coal and some places in the Middle East had some coal, they pretty much ran it out and then the rest of it was difficult to mine. So the energy to get it would have been greater than the energy that they could extract from getting it. Therefore, it just doesn't make sense to mine it. And the Chinese had it and we're going to get to that because again, they're over there happily taking three baths per day. So much coal. But those aren't the only reasons, not just coal, that England got this leg up. Another reason is the enclosure movement. So let me read a section from uh, historycrunch.com about the enclosure movement, because I think it's a pretty good summary. Another important feature of the agricultural revolution was the enclosure movement. In the decades and centuries before the 1700s, British farmers planted their crops on small strips of land while allowing their animals to graze on common fields shared collectively. However, in the 1700s, the British Parliament passed legislation, referred to as the Enclosure Acts, which allowed the common areas to become privately owned. This led to wealthy farmers buying up large sections of land in order to create larger and more complex farms. Ultimately, this forced smaller farmers off the land. Having lost their way of life, many of these farmers went to local towns and cities in search of work. This was important to the overall Industrial Revolution because it helped create a system that created a large workforce for the factories and the mines. In general, the enclosure movement involved the British Parliament passing a series of acts that allowed increased private ownership, which was a key characteristic of the Industrial Revolution. It forced the poor people to migrate to centralized locations such as industrial cities and towns and to seek work in factories and mines. Therefore, historians often view it as one of the main causes of the Industrial Revolution. There you go. So it had two effects. Um, one, kind of a bummer for poor people. They had to lose their way of life and go somewhere else. But the reason they were no longer needed, the reason why they were no longer compensated to a point where they could continue their living, was because of that thing that they just kind of mentioned in passing. The increase in complexity and the increase in, sophistic in sophistication of private farms. Because these previously commonly owned spaces became privately owned instead of commonly owned, 
people could invest in it and not just have their investment used by everybody else. No, it, it was theirs. So they had an incentive to invest, to uh, try, different, uh, try different things on their land, see if they can increase their productivity. We're losing the tragedy of the commons problem, and we're gaining some of the very important foundational things to have a free market, i.e. private property. But that's not the only change in jolly old England. We also had the advent of crop rotation. Now, to some extent, this was used at other times and places. However, remember we have that bias to continue the status quo. Because we have this increase in food production, we have the increase in wealth, well, that lays the groundwork for experimentation. It's not quite so dire that you have a huge crop. We're kind of breaking out of the Malthusian trap. We have a little bit of wiggle room to try some new things. There's a fellow named Townshed called Turna Townshed because he promoted the rotation of wheat, followed by clover, followed by barley, and followed by, well, turnips. The clover and the turnips renewed the soil through nitrogen fixing, and because animals would feed on the clover, and I believe the turnips too, the manure from the animals would then go back into the soil to create larger harvests of the wheat and the barley. Now, this helped a lot, and it actually supported a much larger population as a result, and less farmers were necessary for the same amount of food production. Another thing that came about in part because of this privatization, is the seed drill. So Jethro Tull invented the seed drill. And this requires some amount of industrialization already to be in place. So you have to have a certain level to ride the ride here. You have to be able to make such a thing and make it cheaply enough so that it's economical to deploy. You also need the private property in place so that farmers have individual incentives to take the risk to buy it and then to deploy it. We have to have a society with uh, enough people in it for this to efficiently scale and make sense. And we need communication and interconnectedness enough so that other people can hear about it and it can make a difference because it's being put into use in more than one place. So this is something that's only possible to come about once a bunch of other things, other contingent factors, have all aligned. And this lowered planting time increased the accuracy and the spacing of plants, and it created more efficient rows that were easier to harvest and weed. And of course, we cannot leave this part out. The steam engine. I'm going to read a section from the Encyclopedia Britannica. James Watt did not invent the steam engine. I like it because it begins with this. He did, however, improve the engine apparatus. So often, we just take the most important person that relates to an invention, and we say that they're inventor, and that certainly happened with James Watt. But nevertheless, he was quite important in bringing this about. Because, returning back to our quote, Watt observed a flaw in the Newcomen steam engine. It wasted a lot of steam. Watt deduced that the waste resulted from the steam's steam engine's single-cylinder design. In 1765, Watt conceived of a separate condenser, a device to reduce the amount of waste produced by the new, Newcomen steam engine. Watt patented the device in 1769, and in 1776, Watt and his business partner, Matthew Bolton, 
installed two steam engines with separate condensers. The modified steam engines not only reduced waste, but they also cut fuel cost. And Watt spent the next several years improving his design, adding to it the sun and planet gear in 1781, and the double-acting engine in 1782, the parallel motion, a flywheel, and a pressure gauge in 1790. So, yes, the problem is you need a massive amount of water, and sending that much water through means that you have to heat that water up. So he had the steam go through a condenser, and he reuses that water, and then that turns to steam more quickly because it's already warm, and you don't require a continuous amount of water. You can, to some extent, reuse it. This whole double-acting thing, I believe that relates to having not just the expansion energy, but also the contraction energy, which I think is really cool. You spray a little bit of cool water into the steam, and it flash condenses it, and it pulls the the piston uh, closed. So he invented all of these things, and uh, this is enormous. This is incredible. Part of it is his own genius. There are not that many James Watts in the world, but also it's because by this point, 1776, 1769, We have uh, iron production, we have industrial production, we have gear cutting, we have a lot of things already in place which set the stage for this type of thing being able to be rolled out in an efficient enough manner that can actually do more work than it takes to create. Because that's the only time that an invention can actually uh, exist for any long period of time. It has to do more work than it takes to do the work. It's why the price system is so gosh darn important, because that's how we know. We know that it's, it's uh, worthwhile to do something when the amount of money it makes us is greater than the amount of money that it takes to do that thing, <laughs> or whatever I was saying. Now, I've been looking for a direct source for this next part, but I couldn't quite find it. Nevertheless, I'm pretty sure about this one. The original way that he went around selling his invention was by asking farmers to pay the difference between the cost of coal and the cost of oats. Because one of the things it ran was a pump. And before, they would simply hook a horse up and it would go around on a uh, on turnstile thing and it would pump water. And you'd have to feed your horse oats. That was the cheapest thing you could feed the a little guy. But he claimed that you could buy coal instead, and the coal running the steam engine was cheaper than the oats running the horse. So note what happens here. Probably the most important point of the Industrial Revolution. This is the point where non-food energy calories can replace food energy calories in a way that can increase the overall production of food. That's part of our initial thesis, that that's the reason why we have this spark. So it's the relative cost of coal and oats, which mean that the steam engine becomes popular. It's not because there's just a brilliant inventor who came up with that, though that was necessary. It's an economic question more than just a technological question. Oats were more expensive. And of course, in England, we have something like a free market. Not entirely, but to a great extent. 
And this was caused, in no small part, because of the weird effect of the Black Death in England. Now, over on the continent, after the Black Death happened, there was a limited amount of serfs. So, the owners of the land did what any owner of a land would do. Work them harder. (laughs) So, life got worse for a lot of people over in Europe, as the people who had power held to it more tenaciously, and in order to keep up their power and their quality of life, forced more and more labor out of the people, the dwindling amount of people that they had. So, not cool. However, in Europe, it went the other direction. The price of labor went up. The shift of uh, funds going to nobility class went down and more went to the peasants. And the peasants realized that they were in demand. There's just not that many peasants. So they demanded increased rights. Now, they didn't just demand it nicely. There was the peasant revolt. And this happened in the wake of the uh, of the Black Death that hit England, and as a result of uh, increased tax burden on these people from the previous war with France. So with less people, the share of their taxes increased to pay this. They thought this was entirely unfair, so they revolted. Now, this revolt and a variety of other factors going on ended with a number of uh, pretty awesome reforms, which made England much more liberal in the classical liberal sense. They had very early respect for for life, liberty, and property, and that got enshrined in laws. John Fortescue writes, in praise of the laws of England in the mid-1400s. And if you read that, you'll find that the Things that we typically associate with the American founding, these respects for individual rights, this uh, uh, the idea that the government can't seize property, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, that was there. Um, and that's in no small part a result of the Black Death and the cultural changes. So they had free markets. That is another reason why England had the Industrial Revolution. Next section. Why not Rome? And then we'll get down to the Song Dynasty. But first, we're going to take a wee bit of a break. Rome. Why not Rome? Okay. One, as we mentioned earlier, their coal was quickly depleted. And uh, yeah, so it could create a bump in economic growth for a while. But once it's gone, it's gone. Next, the price of slave labor undercut any desire for labor-saving inventions. The amount of slaves that the Roman Empire had was vast, and it just reduced the need to create different inventions. Also, in that theme, individual liberty was not terribly developed, and free markets were not nearly as developed as other places, so that also stifles innovation. I would add protracted periods of peace and stability were pretty hard to come by. And finally, their management of uh, monetary policy was pretty bad, at least in the latter part of the empire. Inflation and generally poor monetary policies uh, hindered real economic growth. I think you guys uh, don't need too much explanation on that, because right now you're living it. So I know you're screaming by now. Why not the Song Dynasty of China? Sure, maybe England makes sense, but um, 
didn't the song kind of have a leg up on them? Didn't they start way earlier? Weren't they having their three baths a day with all of the wonderful coal that they had, these magical rocks that, uh, that burned? Well, I'll read you a little bit. This is from a book called The Wealth Explosion, The Nature and Origins of Modernity by Stephen Davies. Um, it's a good book, wee bit dry in places, but it's got some good info, particularly on the Song Dynasty. So I'll read you some different excerpts just to give you an idea about what the Song Dynasty was like back in the day, and then I'll tell you why it was not the site of the Industrial Revolution and the birth of modernity in the end. Okie dokie. One, the most significant part was the transformation of agriculture. Here, output was more than doubled from the period from 960 to 1260 AD. At the same time, there was an increase in the variety of crops being cultivated and of the kinds of livestock being kept. The many surviving restaurant menus from this period show this, with a varied cuisine, including items that were not widely available before the song. The increase in output was particularly due to the introduction of new crop varieties, especially new kinds of rice imported from Annam. And these allowed for two crops a year as opposed to one. They also had a number of improved techniques from wider terracing and the adoption of wet cultiva cultivation as well as more use of crop rotation. So they had this extraordinarily early on. Let's see. The reforms, uh, this is another expert, the reforms of land ten uh, tenure included in the Taozhou and Taizong dynasty, er, uh, I guess those are regions, gave peasants full property rights in their land, including the right of sale. As time passed, many took advantage of this, and the consequence was that peasant small holdings were increasingly consolidated into large commercial farms and estates, which were much more productively efficient and innovative. Does this sound familiar? Crop rotation? We have, um, we have free markets which allow property rights to land. Hmm, that sounds like the enclosure movement. We have the result of large, efficient farms coming into being, crowding out small ones which had lower efficiency. Very much like England. Well, let's move on. It is the growth and scale of manufacturing in Song, China, that may be the most impressive to the modern observer. Much of this was dispersed around the countryside in small to medium-sized workshops, often attached to households that had partly or totally moved out of agriculture. This pattern of manufacturing, sometimes referred to as proto-industrialism, was to be found in many parts of the world in subsequent centuries, not least in Europe. So, for example, as early as 1078, China produced, on average, no less than 127,000 tons of iron per year, a level that would not be reached anywhere else in the world until later 18th century Britain. This industry alone consumed the equivalent of 70% of the total amount of coal 
used by all metal industry in 18th century Britain. At that time, in just one district in Uzong province, there were 36 iron foundries run by families and each employing several hundred people. Originally, iron was produced using charcoal, but in the 11th century, there was a move to coal. Coal was mined on a large scale and used in a number of industries in addition to iron and steel. The fig figures for other manufacturing industries, such as porcelain and textiles, are just as striking. Now, in another section, he talks about the huge growth in trade, both internal and external. Through the creation of a canal system called the Grand Canal, which is a network of canals that linked the Yellow River and the Yangtze. In another section, it talks about the different boats that were, were present in the 1080s. So many of these cargo boats um, could carry up to 49 and a half tons, and privately owned boats commonly carried 113 tons worth of cargo. And given the thousands of boats plying the rivers and canal at any moment, this again gives an idea of the sheer volume of trade. In another section, he describes, and I quote, Under the song, Chinese merchants built thousands of seagoing junks. The overwhelming majority were privately owned. And we know from both archaeological evidence and contemporaneous accounts that these made use of several innovations in maritime technology, such as stern rudders, the compass, watertight bulkheads to divide the hull. The 13th century Muslim traveler, Ibim Butala, stated that these ships could have a crew of up to a thousand men and be well over a hundred feet in length. Chinese merchants traveled all over the Indian Ocean, trading with India, East Africa, and the Middle East. We can tell from the evidence of urban life that they imported a wide variety of goods, including foodstuffs, livestock, textiles, while exporting a range of Chinese products, above all silk, porcelain, and metalware. Again, note the parallels to England. This uh, creation of a massive naval fleet, which prompts an international trade. But there's more fun stuff. In the 14th century, um, this is part saying that in the uh, that we very well could have hit modernity in the 14th century rather than the 19th century. Here in a section about population, he writes, by 1190, China's population had reached at least 73 million. 70 years later, it had arrived at the 100 million mark. Chinese population more than doubled between 960 and 1100, and it remained stable at roughly 50 million for the previous 600 years. So massive increase in population. So they maintained double what it had for the previous 600 years of chilling at the Malthusian trap. Okay, um, here's a few other cool bits here. So for example, the level of iron production in 1078 mentioned earlier represents a six-fold increase from 806 in the last years of the Tang. Um, let's see. 
it mentions how by 1200, all of the institutions uh, the kind uh, um, that were of the market economy kind found in 1800 were present in China. That's another pretty shocking quote. I think I've probably quoted enough, but um, there's other sections about the vast rate of urbanization where one city grew a half a million to over a million in just 90 years. That's shocking at a historical level. We see that there's a vast influx of, of clubs and societies from the plant and fruit club to the horse lovers club, the Buddhist tea society, the physical fitness club, the angler, the angler club, and a variety of other small private societies, which were a mark not just of England, but of early America, though maybe not the, the Buddhist tea club. Um, and at the risk of boring you with even more quotes, here's another one. We have increases in technology for printing. Quote, block printing was invented in the 11th century and movable type printing in the 13th. In this case, borrowed from the Koreans. There are important refinements and inventions in the area of mechanical devices. Importantly, the use of belt drives, complex toothed gears. One important element of technological progress in China at this time in marked... Um, um, marking it as opposed to other periods was openness to and the adoption of innovations made elsewhere, such as the movable type, the superior varieties of rice, etc. They had the windmill, they had a bunch of other technologies, they had tools for spinning silk. Um, and uh, yeah, they had a, a water frame that was capable of producing different fabrics. The list goes on and on and on and on. So, Song Dynasty. Basically, it was industrializing England. Why didn't it become the center of modernity? Well, it's really not a terribly complex reason. The reason is Kubal Khan. The Mongolians were pretty powerful at this time, uh, and there were three empires in this region. There is the Song Dynasty, and to the north, the Jin J-I-N. And above them, the Mongols. Now, the Jin inhabited an area where there was a massive amount of pasture land. So they controlled almost all of the horses, um, other than the ones which belonged to the Mongols, even more north of them. So a continual thorn in the side of the, of the Song dynasty was their lack of horses. In fact, there are Chinese historical dramas today where this is the main theme. This is a big problem. It wasn't just a problem because they didn't have them for labor, but they didn't have them for military purposes. Not having cavalry units was a huge disadvantage. Now, the Song Dynasty made up for this by spending 90% of their government revenue on defense. And they had a very fierce infantry unit, which were equipped with very high technological stuff. For instance, they had manufactured crossbows, which were quite effective. And in their naval vessels, they were far more maneuverable. They were larger, they were better built, and they had catapults that shot gunpowder that exploded. So not only did they have exploding shells, they also had some simple rocketry that they used to decimate Mongolian naval fleets. However, in time, this was not enough. After Genghis Khan's grandson went through uh, the Jin province and took over them, 
they set their sights on the jewel of the world, the Song Dynasty. And they were able to effectively take them over, um, bring those who were in power out of power. And the Mongols had no love for this technological development, for the, uh, for the city life, none of this. It was discouraged. Uh, many of the areas which had become wealthy were simply looted. And uh, all their advancements were, were lost, which is a bummer. All right, so let's wrap up by uh, going back to uh, going back to our main thesis. Um, let's see. We said from the beginning that the explosion of wealth starting at the Industrial Revolution is ultimately due to a combination of contingent factors that aligned at the right place in the right time. And these contingent factors we named as, as uh, crop rotation, the increase in uh, free markets, private property rights, um, with the enclosement, the enclosure laws, um, the seed drill, a bunch of those other things we named, the fact that coal was present, the fact that there was a high demand for coal, the fact that we found an entire new world, all that good stuff. So those things aligned at the right time and at the right place, England, to allow for the substitution of non-food calories for food calories in the production of food. And that has the, the example of the, the steam engine, which was sold because it was cheaper than feeding a horse. The definitive uh, triumph of non-food calories over food calories. And as Ian, what's his name, uh, says, looking for the quote, anyways, to summarize, over the course of human history, we have a gradual increase in our ability to extract non-food calories. And I'll read you a few of the overall energy extraction figures after we finish this thesis. But once we hit a point of productivity in our production of non-food calories to the point where it dipped below food calories and the cost of production, bang, this creates a shift. That shift leverages the ability for human labor by replacing people and replacing horses, etc. with machines. So... The increase in these labor-saving machines create the feedback cycle that continues to this day in expanding worker productivity as measured by the energy required to reverse a given amount of entropy. So that's what we're in a balance with. Now I promise to read a few of the, uh, a few of the historical energy extraction uh, rates, which uh, it sounds boring when I say it out loud, but I thought it was fascinating. Here we go. Hang on. All right. This guy is incredible. He went all the way back to 14,000 BC. And if you read his book, which is an ebook, as I mentioned earlier, he can defend a lot of these numbers and quite well. So back then, the total amount of energy, food and non-food calories, that could be extracted were about 4,000 calories per day. Now, by 11,000 BC, that increased to 5,000. By the time we got to 6,000 BC, that goes up to 7,000. 5,000 BC is 8,000. By the time we hit 2,000 BC, we're sitting pretty at 17,000 calories per day that can be extracted on average per person. To fast forward to, oh, let's see, 1100 BC, I think that's the time of Abraham-ish, that's 20,500 calories per day. 
If we go to 500 BC, we're up to 23,000 calories per day. When we reach the time of Christ, we actually hit a peak at 31,000 calories per day. After that, it declines. It declines by 300 down to, and this is in the West, by the way, that declines to 29,000 calories per day. By 600, so somewhere around the fall of Rome, we're down to 26,000 calories a day. Then we're down at 25,000, up to 26,000 by year 1,000. And then year 1600, 29,000. Still not as high as the time of Rome. But by 1700, we reach 32,000, finally passing the first century. And by 1800, we're at 38,000. 1900, we blow all the way to 92,000. And by the year 2000, we are at 230,000 calories per day. And that amount of energy extraction gives us the ability to support incredibly complex societies. So to wrap up, um, let's wrap up on a downer. We normally try to wrap up in a high point, but we need variety in our lives. There are forces today which wish to destroy modernity, which wish to destroy all of the wonderful things that we have created as a society. And the best way to undermine this is to remove our ability to efficiently produce large amounts of food calories and to remove our ability to create vast amounts of non-food calories. This comes in the form of people who are anti-GMO, which we might have to do an episode on. There could be some reasons to be anti-GMO, but in general, I think that position is pretty anti-scientific. It allows us to feed the world. That's a good thing. To support complex societies. That's a good thing. To escape the Malthusian trap. And that's a wonderful thing. And we also see forces which oppose not just fossil fuel, but nuclear. A very safe and completely clean fuel. When there's an insistence on reducing energy, on reducing our output of energy, I read this in the light of human history and the burst of modernity as an attack on modernity itself, as trying to shift the equilibrium in our battle against entropy by reducing our ability to bring things to a low entropy state by using energy. Now, does this mean that we should burn coal willy-nilly and pollute the skies as much as we jolly well please? No, not necessarily. But it should color our thinking when looking particularly at areas which are in poverty. For instance, uh, the slums of India, where a vast amount of the world's population are currently residing. What they need, and what they need more than anything, to create a complex society, to burst out of poverty, to break the Malthusian trap? Well, they need energy. And they need a lot of it. And we'll wrap it up there, guys. I appreciate you listening. And again, if you have comments on this one, this was an enormous subject. And we've left a lot of the story out. But I tried to hit the main things. And I uh, hope you guys learned something. So let me know at thegordianknot101 at gmail.com.